This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater's America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. We are going to be a bit more on the news and and politics side uh, than usual today. But it's been that kind of week. It's been a bit of of an uh, absurd week. Uh, although I think that hit an apex on Wednesday with the BuzzFeed story. What have we said here for years? If you're a longtime Mike Slater Show listener, you know where I'm going for this. For years, we've said never, ever, ever under any circumstances go to BuzzFeed. For any reason, what's, you are better than that. You are a better person than that. So do not ever go to BuzzFeed. Certainly not for your news. <laughs> All right, so mistake number one uh, that the country fell for that from BuzzFeed should have been your first hint right there. So I suppose we got to take a uh, talk a bit about that uh, coming up a little later. Also, not a big story anywhere else, I, I don't think. Uh, but I live in San Diego, and the Chargers have decided to move to Los Angeles. Stinks for football fans here. Uh, I, I, I don't. I don't think it affects anyone else across the country, but there are some interesting economic lessons here that I think are worth talking about. Uh, San Diego is a great example of the taxpayers standing up to the billionaires in the NFL and saying, no, we are not playing your game. We're not going to give you a $1.8 billion stadium. Now, I would say that the taxpayers of San Diego called the bluff of the Chargers, but that's not true because the Chargers did leave. <laughs> but still, uh, it just wasn't a good investment. It's not a good investment. It wasn't a good investment for San Diego. It's not a good investment for anyone. So we'll chat about that a little later as well. I want to start off, though, with uh, Jeff Sessions because we got, I got a bunch of stories to share here. Jeff Sessions, oh, there were obviously there were a lot of um, hearings this week right, from, from Trump's nominees. And Jeff Sessions kicked off the week. Senator from Alabama, the first prominent politician to endorse Trump, I think, right? Very early, surprisingly early uh, endorsement of Trump. And he was, of course, nominated to be attorney general. Here's the bottom line with with the whole thing with Jeff Sessions, and then we'll go into more detail and share some stories that I haven't heard anyone else share, some context and background. There is zero, absolutely zero, credible proof given by anyone that Jeff Sessions is a racist at all. And it's weird because they're not even trying. Like They're not even trying to give proof. They're simply making broad accusations. They're not even making specific accusations anymore. It's just broad accusations. Did you catch any of the testimony by Cory Booker? Right, This is a uh, history-making testimony because it was the first time a sitting senator has ever testified against a senator for a, for a, a position like this. 
So I'm expecting something big, something bombshell, something specific, like a recording. Here's something Jeff Sessions told me that was super racist, and I'm going to play it for you now, like something like that. And all it was was Cory Booker getting up there for a few minutes talking about how like, we need to have justice for everyone, and, and Sen- Senator Sessions won't protect women and minorities, whatever. Period. And the sentence, that was it. There was no specific evidence given at all. It was so bizarre. And then all the headlines are, Cory Booker grills Jeff Sessions or calls him racist. Or, or, it's like, well, <laughs> guys, there's zero proof given at all. So claims, though, that he's been a racist have been, thro- been thrown around for, for decades. So I want to talk about some of those claims here. It doesn't matter because Jeff Sessions is going to be the next attorney general. But it matters just moving forward so that when you read headlines, you don't fall for them. And then even when you read the story and you read accusations, you don't fall for those because it's one thing to give give accusations. Anyone can do that. That's lazy. You got to give some proof, actual proof. And there's none of that against Jeff Sessions. So I want to, uh, you know, where do where do we start here, right? The ACLU gave a, a testimony, and I just I'm just going to go in the order that they make their accusations against Jeff Sessions. Is that fair? I mean, that way I'm not. I'm, I'll go I'll go in the order that the ACLU thought it was appropriate to go in. Uh, let me start with this line here at bottom. Our concern is whether Senator Sessions will be able, in good faith, to fulfill the obligations of the nation's top law enforcement official, namely to defend the rights of all Americans, and in particular, those of the most vulnerable among us. Okay. Uh, Let's start here. Senator Sessions' past statement and actions have demonstrated not just insensitivity, but active hostility to the rights of many of our fellow citizens. He has reportedly made racially offensive remarks to African-American colleagues. Okay, we'll start with that one. He has reportedly made racially offensive remarks to African-American colleagues. Okay, what racially insensitive remarks? Name them. So one of the big ones that's thrown around is that he said, Senator Sessions said, that a white lawyer who prosecutes a white person in a hate crime is a traitor to his race. Have you heard that accusation about him? Have you heard that? So, so Jeff Sessions, so there's a, there's a white lawyer def- or, or prosecuting a white guy for killing a black person or whatever. That white person is a traitor to their race. Where did that accusation come from? All right, here's the backstory. 30 plus years ago, Senator Sessions was the U.S. attorney for Southern Alabama. There was a guy, his name's uh, J. Gerald Hebert. He was a lawyer working on a, a voting rights case in Alabama, and he was working alongside Jeff Sessions, U.S. Attorney Sessions. When Sessions was nominated for federal judge in 1986, this Herbert, Hebert guy testified against Sessions. And this is the story that he shared. I'm going to read from his testimony in 1986. He says, Mr. Sessions and I were in his office. And, we, and see, if you can, see if you can follow the players involved in this story, because you can see how absurd this whole thing is. Mr. Sessions and I were in his office, and we were talking about different judges' handling of cases. And in the course of that, 
the context of that conversation, I mentioned to him that one of the judges had reportedly said, and I still to this day do not know if he said it, but I mentioned to Mr. Sessions that, you know, this had been said that a lawyer who handled civil rights cases in Mobile was either a traitor to his race or a disgrace to his race. Okay, so pause there for a minute. What we have here is a guy talking about something he heard other people say about what a judge supposedly said. So do you have the game of telephone so far? So Mr. Hebert's like, yeah, I was, you know, I was talking to Jeff Sessions about what I heard other people say some judge apparently said. So I have no proof, no proof that the judge actually said this. I only heard it through someone else, but I was telling Jeff Sessions about what I heard other people say this judge said. Okay, you following that so far? So Joe Biden up there, he says, so what was your recollection of, of Mr. Sessions' response to your statement? And Hebert said, as I recall, he said, well, he probably is. And then later in the testimony, Sessions, he said that Sessions said, well, maybe he is. Okay, so this guy says, I remember other people saying that a judge said white lawyers who defend white people uh, or prosecute white people are a traitor to their race. And I remember Jeff Sessions say, yeah, the white guy probably is a traitor or maybe he is a traitor. So the guy doesn't even remember. Like, so it's, it's something that he heard other people say someone else said. So Jeff Sessions didn't say white people are a traitor to the race. But Jeff Sessions' response to that was either, yeah, the guy probably is, or maybe he is. I don't exactly remember. So there you go. That, there's the, that's the whole accusation that Jeff Sessions said, white, white lawyers who prosecute white people are traitors to their race. That's where that all comes from. Now, Jeff Sessions was asked about this. And Jeff Sessions says, no, 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 that's not how it went at all. Jeff Sessions remembers that lawyer guy saying to him that the white lawyer probably isn't popular around town. And Jeff Sessions said something like, yeah, he probably isn't. But that's a statement on, on the racial situation in Alabama at the time. That's not, that's not, Jeff Sessions saying he's a traitor to his race or Jeff Sessions saying the guy shouldn't be popular around town. That's Jeff Sessions saying like, oh yeah, you know, there's still racial tensions here and you know, the the lawyer's probably not popular. But it says nothing about what Jeff Sessions believes is the right thing to do or, you know what I mean? So like that, like that is so, that's what this entire thing is based on. That's absurd. How unfair would it be if you were applying for a job and I said, well, wait a second. I remember I had a conversation with you or with this guy, you, uh, about something someone else said about someone else. And I think I remember what the, what the guy, what your response was to it. And it was, it was, it was kind of, I think if I remember right, I think it was kind of racist. How unfair would that be if I went to, to your potential employer and said that? Yeah, I was, t- I was talking to him about something someone else said that I, that, that they, someone else said, and I remember him saying, I think in response, like, what is that? But that's all it takes. That's all it takes. And people run with that. And Jeff Sessions is a flaming racist to the point where the ACLU can get up there and say, yeah, you know, I, 
he's reportedly made racially offensive remarks. Did he? No. All right, so there's just one example. Got a few more I want to share next. one 3393 But again, I just please have s- such a discerning eye when it comes to headlines. And then when even when you read stories, you got to go a little deeper. Not a lot, a little, a lot deeper into the background. And then come to your own conclusion. one 3393 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. We're just going to keep rolling through these because there's a bunch here, and I want to make sure we definitely get done by the end of the hour about Jeff Sessions. Got a lot more to do. Uh, Next claim against Jeff Sessions, the next attorney general. uh, This is uh, according to the ACLU. He vigorously defended President-elect Trump's patently unconstitutional call for a Muslim ban on immigration. Okay. um, Put aside for a minute here whether or not you think this ban is a good idea or not okay so put that aside put aside even whether or not you think it's moral or immoral i don't think it's unconstitutional right so that's what they said they said president-elect trump's patently unconstitutional call um i don't think it's unconstitutional people cite the establishment clause which is in the first amendment it says congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof so people will say, oh, if you have a Muslim ban on immigration, then that is prohibiting the free exercise of that religion. Yes, but the Constitution only applies to American citizens. So if President Trump banned all Muslims from coming to America, he wouldn't be prohibiting the free exercise of Muslims in America from exercising their religion. Right? He'd, he'd, be, he'd be prohibiting people from Syria from exercising their religion here, but they don't have a, the constitutional protection that an American citizen does. Right? So that's, I don't, I don't see how that violates the constitution, but that's, I guess that's neither here nor there because Trump never once ever called for banning of all Muslims. That is complete revisionist history. Um, any ban he talked about at the, at the, at the first place was with the massive stipulation, which we've talked about a million times on Fox and CNN and everywhere until until our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. That was the rest of his sentence. And as we always say, first, never go to BuzzFeed ever. Second, if someone leaves out a sentence of usually the Constitution, right? If they're quoting the Constitution, they leave out part of the the sentence, then they're uh, probably misleading you in some way, right? They're trying to be deceitful. Same thing here. If you're going to quote Trump, you got to quote the rest of the sentence until until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on. Now, the quick example I like to give of how we don't know what's going on is at the time he said that, 72 people who were on the terror watch list work for the Department of Homeland Security. 
Try that one on for size. There are 72 people who are on the terror watch list who work for the Department of Homeland Security, not work in the federal government, which would be one thing if they work for like, I don't know, Social Security Administration. They work for the Department of Homeland Security and they are on the terror watch list. Not two, 72. That's crazy. That's a nice example of how we have no idea what's going on. But of course, if we talked about a million times as well, Trump does all these things just to get attention. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, they whittle it down to something that makes a lot more sense. And the official position today is that you shouldn't be able to immigrate here if you come from a country with known terrorist ties and we don't know who you are. I've talked to my local show with two. Uh, one immigrant was from Afghanistan and one was from Iraq. Uh, San Diego has a, a huge called chaldean population who are christians uh they're christians from iraq but also a ton of iraqi refugees come to san diego uh and also a bunch of afghan refugees and i talked to two of them and they both said oh no no no, you can't you can't just have people from syria and, and, and iraq and afghanistan come here unless you know who they are and i said well what about you and both of them worked with the navy seals in in their countries for years before they were able to seek asylum here in America. So their response is, well, I, I, they know who, who I, you know who I am. America knows who I am. The SEALs can vouch for me. But to just let people in here willy-nilly, they're like, no, you can't do that. Trust me, you can't do that. So anyway, um, that's the position. Now, you can disagree with it, of course, but that's a pretty sensible position to have, and it's a legal position to take. And you can disagree with it, but that doesn't make... Someone who does agree with it, a racist. But anyway, back to Jeff Sessions. Lindsey Graham asked if he would support, uh, well, here's the quote, would you support a law that says uh, you can't come to America because you're a Muslim? And Jeff Sessions said, no, I would not support that law. And I don't think many people would. So here's the end of that <laughs> controversy, right? Uh, let me introduce this one, and we'll have to polish off it in the in the next segment. Uh, Jeff Sessions, this is according to the ACLU. Jeff Sessions has criticized the Voting Rights Act, and as a U.S. attorney in Alabama, he prosecuted civil rights activists for merely assisting African Americans to vote. Okay, uh, he criticized the Voting Rights Act because he said it was uh, intrusive, and by intrusive he meant it only applied. And he clarified this in his testimony it only applies to certain states and when a federal government passes a law it should apply to all states not just some states that's what he, that that was the critic criticizing in the voting rights act right the, his criticism wasn't whoa 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 black people shouldn't be allowed to vote like that, like that wasn't the criticism but they don't clarify they don't go into detail so they just let your mind assume the worst my wife and i we have a rule in our marriage don't assume the worst Right when someone says something, you can either assume the worst or you can assume the best about what they're trying to say, and all most of the time people assume the worst. So when the ACLU says, "Oh, he critic he's he's criticized the Voting Rights Act," people go to, "Oh, he doesn't want black people to vote." Whatever. No, no, no. He he just thinks it should be applied equally to all states and and be written to apply to all states. That's what that is. But here's the main story I want to get to, and then we'll wrap up Jeff Sessions and move on. He prosecuted civil rights activists for merely assisting African-Americans to vote. When they throw the word merely in there, again, they're trying to frame that because that's not, 
all that they were doing, the people that he prosecuted. So we'll give you the full backstory of that. What, what is that about? Who did he prosecute and why? I'll tell you the whole story coming up next. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. Slater, 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 Uh, I think we have time for one last story here about Jeff Sessions. The the backstory that I haven't heard anyone else give. They just throw out. It's it's weird. Like, I don't know how to describe this. There's, you have proof, okay, which there's none of uh, that in this case, Jeff Sessions Sessions is a racist. Then you have specific accusations, right? He said this, but that's, that never even happened. Like, there's none of that. Like, as we kicked off the show with it, it's, it's not, I heard Jeff Sessions say this. It's someone else said that a judge said something. So I asked Jeff Sessions what he thought about what the judge said. And I think he said this. Or it could have been this. And Jeff Sessions is like, no, I said this. <laughs> I said, like, like that. But at least there's like somewhat of a specific accusation there, I guess. And then you have on top of that, you have just broad generalities he is racist but that's nothing and i don't want anyone ever to be fooled by that or ever to make any uh, opinion based off of that because anyone could do that now here's at least an accusation this is from the aclu he prosecuted civil rights activists for merely assisting african-americans to vote all right so what what happened here what's the backstory so it started in the late 1970s there were two main groups in this count in Perry County, Alabama, concerned citizens of Perry County, which we will call uh, the, the white group, and then Perry County Civic Group, which is the black group. Concerned citizens of Perry County and Perry County Civic Group. The Perry County Civic Group was run by Albert Turner, who's a black man who, gosh, he, he's, he fought for the right of black people to vote for, for decades. He first started when he tried to go vote himself. I think he was college educated, super smart guy. And he tried to vote and he didn't pass the, the poll test. Right. So he's like, Oh, this is outrageous. And obviously it was. So he fought for decades to, to help black people to vote. And his work was gaining some traction and he was really successful at it. And more and more black people were voting and more black people were, were winning elections in Perry County. Now this white group concerned citizens of Perry County did not like it. Some will say it's a white supremacist group. They didn't like it because they didn't like black people or they, they just didn't, they disagreed politically. Either way, they tried to encourage uh, more white people to vote in Perry County. Now they did this with a little bit of trickery. It was the election of 1980, I believe. And the polls in Perry County were only open for four hours in the afternoon. How long are the polls open today? From like six to six or something, 12 hours, right? So they were only open for four hours in the afternoon and one third of all the adults worked outside of the county. Now, so obviously the goal here was to limit the amount of time and therefore the number of people who, can, who could vote. Now, what this white group did before that is they encouraged white voters to vote absentee. 
because they knew that a lot of them wouldn't be able to vote in that short time. But they said, oh, listen, if you vote absentee, then you don't actually have to come back and miss a day of work or whatever. So in that election, they were super successful. Obviously, they won a bunch of races. But it took just one more election for the black group to catch up to the trick. So by the 1982 election, this black group got a ton of other people, a ton of black people to register absentee so that they could vote even though they were working, right? Makes sense? So in the next election, 1982, the black absentee vote rose and, and the votes were again even. Actually, not even even. Turns out in 1982, black candidates supported by this black group won majorities on school boards and county commissions in Perry County and three other counties nearby. This group was super successful at getting out the vote. Now, the district attorney at the time, inspired by I do not know what, joined with uh, a black candidate from who was supported by the white group and asked for a federal investigation by the U.S. attorney for Southern Alabama, who happened to be Jeff Sessions at the time, to investigate, right? So what Sessions did is he had an FBI agent stand outside the post office before the next election. So this FBI agent standing outside of this post office in Perry County, and he finds three black people from this group walking towards the post office with hundreds of absentee ballots. And the FBI agent said, whoa, 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 what's going on here? They explained, they took the ballots, opened them up, and found 75 of the ballots had at least one instance where a candidate was filled in, and then it was erased, and, and the vote was changed. With me, right? So, so the accusation or the belief was that this group was getting black people to vote absentee, fill out their ballot, and then they would change the ballot to however they wanted, that this group wanted to vote. Right? Makes sense. And when you have 75 ballots that have that in the hundreds that they were mailing, you can see how that's a, a reasonable suspicion. Long story short, went to trial and Sessions lost the case. People who filled out those disputed ballots, they testified and they said that they made those changes willingly. So Sessions lost the case. The people who were uh, accused, Albert Turner especially, uh, was free to go and everything, nothing happened. Story over. Does that make Jeff Sessions racist? So there's the backstory. To, to the very short sentence, he prosecuted civil rights activists for merely assisting African-Americans to vote. He didn't prosecute them because they were helping. He prosecuted because they thought that they were cheating. Right? He thought that they were fraudulently voting on behalf of other people. Now, it turns out they weren't, so that was it. That was the end of it. Does that make Jeff Sessions a racist? Now, maybe it's worth noting that Perry County, Alabama was known to have voter fraud, and still today, in 2012, Perry County, Alabama has a population of 1,775 people. They had 2,587 people registered to vote. And 80% of the entire town voted in the 2012 election. So it's perhaps a town accounted for some voter fraud. Was the case handled poorly? Was it unwise to take the case at all? 
Could it have been handled differently? Could it have been done differently? Sure. But I think it's a stretch. I think you have to assume the worst to conclude that Jeff Sessions is a racist because of it. No? Or maybe maybe, maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm interpreting that poorly. Maybe because he did that, he is, uh, he is racist. That's for you to decide, but at least you have the full backstory of what was going on as opposed to just an accusation. 1-800-7, excuse me, 1-888-933-93. 1-888-933-93. We'll take a quick break here. Uh, come back, we'll put a bow on the whole Jeff Sessions nomination. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. The offer of a franchise can only be made through delivery of a franchise disclosure document. All right, last Jeff Sessions story. So uh, the ACLU also said that Sessions described the NAACP as un-American. So again, this is a great example of assuming the worst versus assuming the best. Okay? So if you read that, Jeff Sessions said the NAACP is un-American. What do you, what do you assume? Well, you assume that he's racist, right? These are the, the, everything the NAACP believes in and is is un-American. They're bad people uh, because they're black, and therefore Jeff Sessions is a racist. That's when you assume the worst. But it turns out that accusation is from a testimony in 1986, where someone said that they thought Jeff Sessions believed that the NAACP and the ACLU were un-American. Now, this is interesting. The original testimony where this accusation comes from, the accusation is he believes the NAACP and the ACLU are un-American. But why today do people leave out the ACLU part and only quote the NAACP part? Because that's the racial part. But Jeff Sessions said NAACP and the ACLU are un-American. But you can't cite both of those because then race isn't the main reason. So they leave out the ACLU, ACLU just do the NAACP part. Amazing. Now, in that testimony in 1986, they asked Hebert, the same guy who we talked about at the top of the hour, did he give a reason for his belief about these groups? And Hebert said, he said he thought they did more harm than good when they were trying to force civil rights down the throats of people who were trying to put problems behind them. Now, We can ask Jeff Sessions what he meant by that. Or we can ask for someone else's interpretation of what they thought Jeff Sessions believed. I'd rather ask Jeff Sessions. And Jeff Sessions' response to this was, quote, I recall saying that civil rights organizations, when they demand more than is legitimate, it hurts their position. That is 100% true. And that's true for every organization. But when a civil rights group says, we think this policy or this law, un, uh, you know, it hurts black people more or whatever. Okay, that's legitimate. That's, that's fine. Let's, let's chat about that. But then when the group goes beyond that and says stuff like, you know, reparations for slavery or whatever, that's like, no, no, no. That's, you're, you're demanding more than, than is legitimate. And that hurts your cause. 
your otherwise sensible, reasonable cause is hurt by going too far. That's what Jeff Sessions was saying. When you have a reasonable core, right? That's great. But then when you stray from that into, you know, in this case, reparations for slavery or whatever, that hurts your core. Because people look at you now as this fringe group that, um, you know, shouldn't be listened to with anything. That was Jeff Sessions' point. Now, the un-American part, he was specifically referring to, at the time, the NAACP and the ACLU were supporting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. That's a Marxist group. And he said when these groups take positions beyond their core purpose, like supporting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, then they make bad decisions. And yes, even take un-American positions as supporting this Marxist group could very easily be characterized as un-American. That's the context of that. They're not un-American because they're black or they're not un-American because they support um, affirmative action. That, that, like, those are legitimate policy decisions and discussions that we can, of course, have. They're un-American because they support the Marxist group in Nicaragua and they hurt themselves when they go beyond their core mission, which is a righteous mission. But when they go beyond that, they're only hurting themselves. That's what Jeff Sessions said. Isn't that a perfect example of assuming the worst and assuming the best? But everyone wants to assume the worst, of course. Now, any article that you've read about Jeff Sessions and how racist he is, any article that does not also include any of the work that he did to desegregate the schools in Alabama or to prosecute the son of a Klan's member who killed a black teenager. Sessions insisted on the death penalty for, for that guy. Any article about him being a racist that does not also include him just last year standing on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, holding hands with Congressman John Lewis and all the other members of the Congressional Black Caucus with big smiles, arm-in-arm love fest, is intentionally leaving those things out to create a perception that is not entirely true. I've read so many articles about John Lewis, civil rights icon John Lewis, eviscerating uh, Jeff Sessions just a couple days ago. And any article that writes, they write about that, that's fine. But you also have to, have to include the fact that Jeff Session, Sessions and John Lewis were holding hands on the bridge in Selma a year ago. And there were no problems then. So why now? Any, any article you read that talks about how Cory Booker eviscerated Jeff Sessions during his testimony also has to include last February, Cory Booker getting up and giving a speech praising uh, uh, Jeff Sessions for awarding uh, the 1965, uh, uh, I think, Selma marchers uh, and giving them the Congressional Gold Medal, right? That was, that was Cory Booker and Jeff Sessions working together to make that happen. So you have to include that full story there. Otherwise, it's just not fair. And you're in they're intentionally being biased. And we always say the, most, the, the, the number one way that the media is biased is not what they say. It's what they don't say. It's what they leave out. And that's a really good example of it. Clearly, there's an agenda. Clearly, they're trying to create a perception and tell a story. And they're doing that by leaving important information out and by leaving context out, which is why I felt there was the need to kick off the show and kick off the first hour, giving the context and the backstory to all these accusations against who will be 
the next attorney general. Uh, no doubt about that. Jeff Sessions. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. I hope all that made sense. I hope that was uh, that was somewhat valuable. Coming up next, talk a little bit about. Uh, oh, by the way, Dana did a really awesome show about all the good things Jeff Sessions did uh, for race relations in, in, in Alabama, which is uh, so. So there's aside from there being no evidence that he's a racist, there's a ton of evidence on the contrary, and Dana did an excellent job with that. Glenn did an excellent job the other day telling the story of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. I want to talk about that and relate that to this ridiculous BuzzFeed story from the other day, which was just fake news. It was the, the, this is so far the apex of fake news, or whatever the opposite of the apex is, the lowest of the low when it comes to fake news. But it's nothing new. It's nothing new. We'll do all that next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. in the world thanks for being here. happy saturday so i actually had the flu for um pretty much after right after last week's show until like, thursday but i had to do the show on wednesday it was more like a stomach flu uh so i could i could power through like hillary but uh i had to do the show on wednesday because what the heck happened wednesday wednesday was the weirdest news day of all time because of the bombshell intelligence report Whenever you see something that says bombshell in the headline, uh, it's probably not a bombshell. I just want to read this Huffington Post headline and then the sub-headline. Okay, so this is before you even get to the article. So the headline is, here's how to understand the bombshell new report on Trump and Russia. And then the sub-headline, the line right underneath it. The claims in newly released opposition research documents aren't verified. Listen. If something is in fact bombshell, part of the definition of bombshell is it has to be verified. It can't be bombshell if nothing about the report is verified. What the heck is that? Let me, uh, I know we've been talking about some major themes that we've talked about a lot in the last few years, but they're all seem to have come together this last week. The proper lens to look at this goofy BuzzFeed story about Trump and Russia is uh, knowing the number one priority of TV news producers. And that is to fill time. The number one priority of TV news is to fill time. This report is total garbage, but it satisfies the number one priority of TV news. Fill time. Now you throw on top of that something we've said for years about BuzzFeed, never, ever, ever go to BuzzFeed. Ever. As an adult human, you should never go to BuzzFeed because it is a giant time suck on your life and it is never productive. BuzzFeed is a soulless place where 770 aimless millennials go to work every day and make lists of crap. As a productive adult in society, you should never spend a second of your precious life on BuzzFeed in any capacity whatsoever. You're too good for that. You are above BuzzFeed. If BuzzFeed ever comes up as a link on your Facebook feed, 
which you should probably also very rarely go to Facebook. But uh, if BuzzFeed ever pops up on your feed, you should block it from ever popping up again. And you are welcome. Kick it out of your life. You're better than that. Now, that's just BuzzFeed regular. BuzzFeed news? What are you kidding me? So we don't need to go over the report again. You know everything about it, and it's total fake. It's completely made up. This is this is the new low when it comes to fake news reporting. So I'll just cut to the chase here. A couple priorities. Mother Jones and BuzzFeed are not news organizations. The number one priority of TV news is to fill time. And I'm sorry this is the way it has to go, but you have to assume that everything you read and see on TV is fake, unless proven true. You know the old trust but verify? We're past that. We are in do not trust until you verify. That's just the post-truth world we live in. Now, all that being said, this is nothing new. People have been making stuff up forever. When the whole fake news controversy first started a couple months ago, we did a segment you may remember on Ben Franklin, who was a, a frequent purveyor in the fake news. Uh, like, funny fake news, so he was in the parody business, but also in the pretty serious fake news. I mean, he made up a story in uh, Pennsylvania Gazette, his newspaper, one of his newspapers, that said uh, Indians, or the British, were getting Indians to cut the scalps off of colonists or off of French or who was it off of the French? I forget. Cut the scalps off someone and then send them back to British members of parliament and the king as trophies. And he sent that article all around the rest of Europe to inflame hatred of England. Totally made up. Like just, he just sat down and made the whole thing up. Ben Franklin. And then he did some funny things too. Um, we told the story where he said he uh, wrote in an obituary uh, that Edmund Titus died. So Edmund Titus had to come back and say, he had to write an article saying, I'm not dead. And then Ben Franklin, under a fake name, said, that's someone pretending to be Edmund Titus. And Edmund Titus had to write another article being like, no, I'm definitely really alive and this is really me. And then Ben Franklin went on this whole thing that that's the ghost of Edmund Titus. And then a couple years later, Edmund Titus really died. So Ben Franklin wrote an article thanking the person who was pretending to be Edmund Titus all these years for no longer pretending to be Edmund Titus because he really died 10 years ago or whatever. So, so Ben Franklin, he's done this stuff for a long, long time. Again, some in jest and some with, with serious intent. So fake news is nothing new. I'm not saying it's good, even though that's a pretty funny story, uh, the, the fake obituary. But uh, fake news is nothing new. Glenn Beck, story, Glenn Beck did a story the other day about Upton Sinclair. You've heard the name before. He wrote The Jungle. Written in 1906, I believe, about the meatpacking industry in Chicago. I think it's still mandatory reading for most every high schooler or college kid. It's nearly all fake. This, this book, more than any other book I can think of, has the greatest ratio of pitched as real, but is totally made up, <laughs> right? I mean, there's a lot of books that are made up, right? But, but it's like, oh, here's a made up book. This is pitched as nonfiction and it's a fiction book. 
but people still believe it's not it's nonfiction. It's wild. It is a novel. But people take it as gospel. So Teddy Roosevelt praised Sinclair when the book came out. And and obviously that's what inspired the um I forget what the name. It's like the Meat Packing Inspection Act of 1906 or something like that. But when Roosevelt met Sinclair and found out that almost the entire book was a lie, Roosevelt wrote to a friend. He said, I have an utter contempt for him. He is hysterical, unbalanced, and untruthful. Three-fourths of the things he said were absolute falsehoods. For some of the remainder, there's only a basis of truth. So the whole book's fake. People don't realize, but there were meat inspectors before that 1906 act, there were meat inspectors when Upton Sinclair went undercover in a meatpacking plant. There were, there were hundreds of inspectors, and none of them, none of them reported anything that Upton Sinclair wrote about in his book. Even though Upton Sinclair only spent a couple weeks in a meatpacking plant. The Department of Agriculture uh, Bureau of Animal Husbandry wrote a report in 1906 about the novel and point by point just refuted almost every claim in the book, called it willful and deliberate misrepresentations of fact, atrocious exaggeration, not at all characteristic of real life. Isn't that amazing? But today, pitched as fact. This is what it was really like. Now, I want to read there. This is what Jack London wrote about the book. Jack London was a socialist, Uh, And this is what he wrote in support of the book. He wrote, Dear Comrades, the book we have been waiting for these many years, it will open countless ears that have been deaf to socialism. It will make thousands of converts to our cause. It depicts what our country really is, the home of oppression and injustice, a nightmare of misery, an inferno of suffering, a human hell, a jungle of wild beasts. And take notice and remember, comrades, this book is straight proletarian, so working class. It is written by an intellectual proletarian for the proletarian. It is to be published by a proletarian publishing house. It is to be read by the proletariat. What Uncle Tom's Cabin did for the black slaves, the jungle has a large chance to do for the white slaves of today. So Upton Sinclair's The Jungle was fake news. A made-up novel meant to grow socialism. Mean, that, that, that was the point of it. To attack capitalism, attack free markets, attack laissez-faire, which did not even exist then, really, um, and usher in big government socialism. That was the point. Written to trick people into ushering a socialist revolution. And in many ways it worked. More regulations were passed, but an interesting footnote to the whole thing the regulations that were passed were ultimately supported by the big meatpacking companies because they could afford the regulations. The little meatpacking industry uh, companies could not afford it. So these regulations from the federal government actually drove the competition out of business. So the big meatpacking companies actually liked it. And this is true with regulations today as well. Big business likes regulations because they can afford them and the little guys can't. And it makes it harder for new industry, new companies, new competition to come in and enter the market. So big business loves regulations. But anyway, point is, it's all fake news. It's always been fake news. You have to assume everything is fake until proven true yourself. Keep an eye out for Upton Sinclair's The Jungle in your house when your kids bring it home from school. And you can read it. Just let them know it's, it's made up. It's a novel. 
Nothing more. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Wary of the fake news. Um, want to play this clip here. This is Kamala Harris. She was the attorney general in uh, California, where I live. Uh, wanted to play this for you because Kamala Harris will run for president in 2020 or 2024. She will run for president. She just became a U.S. senator. She took over for one of them. I forget. Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein are like the same person. I keep forgetting which one retired. I think Boxer retired. So Kamala Harris took over um, and she'll run for president. She checks a lot of boxes with the Democrats and she's pretty smart, charismatic enough, likable enough. So um, she'll run. Anyway, this was her grand debut as a U.S. senator, her grilling of the nominee for CIA director. Isn't it funny? Every article I read about any nomination process, it's always the senator grilling. The, right, you know, there's no other no other verb they use. They're only grilling the the, the nominee. Um, so this is CIA director. He's running for CIA director. He's nominated for congressman in Kansas. He graduated first in his class at West Point. Went to Harvard Law. Tea Party guy. So this is the grilling. It's like two minutes, and I, I, I want to play this because this is Exhibit A of why these confirmation hearings are just a bunch of silly grandstanding. Uh, but here's your, your, your first listen, perhaps, into someone who will uh, run for president for the Democrats in four years. 1230, uh, 1273. CIA Director Brennan, who spent a 25-year career at the CIA as an analyst, a senior manager, and station chief in the field, has said that when, quote, CIA analysts look for deeper causes of rising instability in the world, one of the causes those CIA analysts see as the is the impact of climate change. Do you have any reason to doubt the assessment of these CIA analysts? Uh, Senator Harris, I haven't had a chance to, to read those materials with respect to uh, climate change. I do know the agency's role there. Uh, its role is to collect foreign intelligence, to understand threats to the world. That would certainly include threats from uh, poor governance, regional instability, uh, threats from all sources, and deliver that information to policymakers. And uh, to the extent that changes in climatic activity uh, are part of that foreign intelligence collection task, uh, we will deliver that information to you all and to the president. In the past, you have questioned the scientific consensus on climate change. Nevertheless, according to NASA, multiple studies published in peer-reviewed scientific journals show that 97% or more of actively published um, climate scientists agree that climate warning trends over the past century are extremely likely due to human activities. In addition, most of the leading scientific organizations worldwide have issued public statements endorsing this position. Do you have any reason to doubt NASA's findings? Senator, I've actually spoken to this in my uh, political life uh, some. Uh, my commentary most all has been directed uh, to ensuring that the policies that America put in place uh, actually achieve the objective of ensuring that uh, we didn't have catastrophic harm that resulted from change in climate. I continue to hold that view. Uh, I frankly, as the director of CIA, uh, would prefer today not to get into the details of climate debate and science. It just, it seems my, my, my role is going to be so different and unique from that. It, it is going to be to work alongside warriors keeping Americans safe. Uh, and so uh, I, I stand by the things that I've said previously uh, with respect to that issue. So I'm not clear. Do you believe that NASA's findings are debatable? 
So, so no, I, I have to tell you, I haven't spent <laughs> enough time to tell you that I've looked at NASA's findings in particular. I just, I can't give you any judgment about that today. And you guarantee me that you will and will have a follow-up conversation on this? I, I'm happy to continue to talk about it. Yes, ma'am, of course. <laughs> what the heck? This, he's, he's CIA director. What are you talking to him about climate change for? Every response he gave was the nicest version of, what is your problem, lady, that he could possibly muster? Hey, do you believe the NASA science? Do you believe it? He's like, I don't what? I don't even. I love at the end. She's like, well, can you promise we'll talk about it again? Like his number one priority there was to end the conversation. So he's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll definitely talk about it. But you like <laughs> what he really wanted to be, be was, no, we, we will never speak on this topic again. I, I am hard pressed, Senator, to think of a topic that is less to do with my job than climate change. So, no, we will never speak of this again. I, I will, in fact, put your office on direct to, to voicemail uh, because th this is absurd if this is what you're actually going to question me on. Kristen Gillibrand is a senator, excuse me, congressman in uh, Syracuse, New York, where I grew up. And uh, she talked to or grilled uh, Mad Dog Mattis on gay people in the military and does that affect climate readiness or something like climate excuse me uh combat readiness and he's like listen i don't care i don't care who people go to bed with just whatever he's like oh but what do you what do you what do you really think he's like i, I don't care no but i want you on the record what do you really really think? he's like I, I, my job is to kill people and break things like i don't I, we don't even care who you, right so but like, does that prove that democrats still don't get it they're talking to these guys the cia director in the department of defense about Gay marriage and climate change. What are we talking? What, 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 what's going on? Get a clue. I only got two minutes. I want to talk about Rex Tillerson real quick. Um, Secretary of State. No honest person could be anything less than impressed with him and, and the job he did uh, in his proceedings. The most noteworthy exchange was between him and Rubio. I don't know what Rubio's deal was during that. Rubio was trying to get Tillerson to say that Russia is a war, or Putin's a war criminal. And obviously he wouldn't do it. I don't see what good that does, Marco, to get the next Secretary of State to put him on the spot to do that. You know he won't say that Putin's a war criminal. And what good would that do anyway? If you call Putin a war criminal, that doesn't leave the nation's top diplomat much room to work with. Everyone knows who Putin is. Everyone knows what he is. So why push Tillerson on that? This is why Tillerson, and ultimately he said, my interests are the same as yours. Our interests are not different, Senator. There seems to be some misunderstanding that I see the world through a different lens. I do not. I share all the same values you share and want the same things the world over in terms of freedom. Of course he does, Rubio. Chill out. Why make a big deal about that? I don't get it. I, here's the thing. I don't mind honest questioning, but what Rubio was doing wasn't honest questioning because Rubio knows what Tillerson thinks about Putin. No one's really wondering what any of these nominees feel about issues. It's all grandstanding so that these senators can get a couple clips to play back on their, their, you know, on their Facebook page or something like that, get a couple likes. It's not like Rubio was really wondering if Tillerson thinks Ruby, uh, thinks uh, Putin's awesome or, or like, like we know we know <laughs> everyone we get it okay so why put him on the spot no reason to do that but Tillerson handled it fine obviously 
1-888-933-93. I want to come back, share a story here from an honest person who hates Trump supporters, but, but he's honest about it and honest about why. Um, but he misses one important point. And this is very important in case you know someone who hates Trump supporters as much as this guy. We'll talk about that next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. Slater presenters. Tom Kreider writing in The Week. I like this article. It's really honest. Um, it's about how he doesn't know how to deal with Trump supporters. Uh, he says, my official policy towards a Trump administration is straightforward. Defy, paralyze, and undermine it in any way I can. I remember when uh, some conservatives said they were going to do that about Obama back in 2008, and that was the worst thing ever. What's going to be more complicated is formulating some coherent attitude towards the 62 million of my fellow Americans who elected that administration. And he tells a story about how over Christmas, um, let me see if I can quote here, actually. He says, I only know two confirmed Trump voters. One, by the way, real quick, how many Hillary voters do you know? I can't even count. I know dozens. I know dozens of Hillary voters. This guy knows two Trump voters. One of them is from Texas and the other is a Marine. So they both have their excuses. I recently sent a text to the, uh, the woman from Texas, letting her know, check this out, letting her know I wasn't going to meet her for dinner while she was in town because I considered her vote for Trump unconscionable. Wow, what a jerk move. <laughs> what a total jerk thing to do. And apparently he goes on to say that she just broke up with her abusive boyfriend. And he says he kind of ended up feeling like a jerk not meeting with her because he should meet with her to cheer her up and be a friend. And like, yeah, what, what a dope. What are you doing? I, I, I wouldn't fathom. And I, again, I know a ton of Hillary supporters. My mom's a Hillary voter. Like I, I would never imagine being. Oh, I'm not. I can't even. I'm not even going to meet with you. What do you mean? Um, and then he goes on and says, "My feeling has always been that if religion or ideology has become more important to you than actual human beings, something may have gone seriously wrong with your values." Yeah, but you did. <laughs> I mean, you 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 didn't meet with your friend because of her vote. So you did not live according to that value that day, sir. Anyway, here's why I bring up this article. This is his description of why people voted for Trump or, or, or why people are conservative. Um, a vote cast for Trump is kind of like a murder. There may be context to consider a disadvantaged background, extenuating circumstances, un understandable motives, but the choice itself is still binary and final, irrevocable. <laughs> right? So you can vote for Trump, and yet for different reasons that may or may not make sense. But still, there's a case to be made that it's indefensible that his supporters have forfeited any right to be respected or taken seriously. The conservatives of the heartland have lashed it back against the coastal elite's condescending classist prejudices by defiantly confirming them that we are pathetically dumb and gullible, uncritical consumers of any disinformation that confirms their biases, easy dupes 
for any demagogue who promises to bring back the factories and keep the brown people down. Let me quick time out here. All people are capable of being pathetically dumb and gullible. All people of all political persuasions are capable of being uncritical consumers of disinformation that confirms their bias. All people of all political persuasions are easily duped by any demagogue who promises whatever they want. One of our priorities of the, of, uh, the election, but after it, is to have the humility to understand our own weaknesses and have the humility to understand our own biases, etc. This gentleman does not. Where he thinks only conservatives are gullible, only conservatives have confirmation bias. Only conservatives can get riled up by a, a, a good speaker. Come on. Everyone is capable of that. All right, last line. And then this is what I wanted to get to. Ignorance and bigotry are actually the best possible motives for having voted for Trump. They're at least honest. But I don't believe all Trump voters are ignorant or bigoted. Most of them are just evil. This is in the week. This isn't some crazy blog. This is a published piece. Evil being defined not as anything so glamorous as beheading journalists or gunning down grade schoolers, but simply as not much caring about other people's suffering. That's the sentence I want to talk about. Conservatives are evil in the sense that they don't, you don't care about other people's suffering. They're willing to consign someone else, someone Mexican or Muslim or trans, not anyone they know, to exile, arrest. By the way, I know Mexicans, Muslims, and trans people. So uh, consigning them to exile, arrest, or second-class status in exchange for what? A tax break? To send a message to Washington or the mainstream media just out of spiteful, petulant rage? Okay, we'll stop there. This is what I want to get to. I could address every part, obviously, but just roll with it. This line here is the faulty base which upon which this, this man is, is building his bridge. This is the sand that he is building his house on. That conservatives and Trump voters are evil in terms that they don't care about other people's suffering. Nonsense. We, you, I, we all care about other people's suffering. The difference is we disagree, conservatives and progressives generally disagree on the solution to people's suffering. So do you see how this writer misinterpreted that? He, so, so I'll give some examples here, but we see someone suffering. Okay? They believe to solve that suffering, we should do X. I look at that, you look at that, and say, well, no, to solve that suffering, we should do Y. This progressive interprets us because we think Y is the solution as not caring about that person's suffering because we have a different solution to the suffering. Therefore, we don't really care. Because we disagree with them on the solution, we actually don't even care about the suffering at all. And that's incredibly closed-minded. I'll give an example. There's a mentoring group here in San Diego. It's actually across the country. It started here in San Diego called Boys to Men Mentoring. And they meet 
in schools. It's an in-school mentoring program. Middle school boys, that's the age they target. They come from broken homes, a lot of issues. They're headed down the wrong path to jail, gangs, drugs, you name it. A lot of suffering in these kids' lives. They've seen a lot that no one could ever see. They have way too much responsibility on their plates um, as, as, as middle schoolers. A lot of pain and guilt. Um, they have a, a ton of emotions, like abandonment, and they don't know how to express them. So they lash out at school. They're violent, disrespectful, don't listen to adults, don't trust anyone, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen it a million times. So... We all see that suffering, Tim. You see a suffering 12-year-old boy with a terrible home life. I, conservative Mike Slater, see that suffering. Don't tell me I don't care about that suffering. We all care about the suffering. I, know, I think you care about the suffering. So at least give me that I also care. We all care about the suffering. Where we differ is how we solve the suffering. That's the disagreement. Not in caring about the person. We all care about the young man's suffering. But of course, Tim and other progressives believe we don't care at all. I want to help this young man. Now, how would Tim help this young man, this 12-year-old? Probably some, think the solution is some government program, right? More school counselors, restorative justice. Don't even get me started on that lately in, in our schools these last few years. He would think that, well, we need to uh, we need more pre-K programs and pre-pre-K so that the government can educate children sooner. And uh, I mean, who knows? Like some big government solution. We need an after-school government program to help. No. I think the solution is short-term because there already is a problem here, right? We have long-term solutions and short-term. Short-term here. Mentoring programs like Boys to Men, led by men who have gone down the wrong path, who can guide these boys and teach them the right path. That's how you solve this particular suffering. So because I I believe that's the solution, not some big government program coming from D.C., don't tell me I don't care about the suffering. I care about it. I want to solve it. Now, I believe my way of solving it's better than your way. But I don't think you don't care about the suffering. I have the humility to, to say, well, we just disagree on how to solve it. I'm not going to tell you you don't care about his suffering. Although I could come to that conclusion because I don't think your solution will, will come to a, 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 is a solution at all. But I'm not going to come to that conclusion because that's absurd. I'm going to assume the best of your motives. And I'm going to make an argument as to why my solution's better. So that's short-term for that young man. Long-term, it's just strength in families and church and society. That's it. But why would Tim assume the worst about, you, about your soul that you don't care about human suffering? We can, we can pick any, any person, anything. Pick any, uh, we'll do a poor immigrant. Right? Poor immigrant. Do we not care about the life that they will, might live in a... In a drug-infested, poverty-stricken country, maybe a war-torn country. Of course we care about that suffering. The question is, what do we do to help that suffering? Well, we want an immigration system that is efficient and effective, 
where we know who people are, maybe where we have a sponsorship program so that there's some actual real accountability and connection that immigrants have to people who currently live here and they're not just left on their own to live in American ghettos. And where they can come to America and assimilate based on our values because we believe that our values best contribute to human thriving. That's, that's the solution we want. Why do we know that this model works? Because this is how it's always worked in American history. How many stories of immigrants who come to America with nothing in their pockets do we have to share before we prove that this is how it should be done? As opposed to just game on. Don't assimilate, game on, do whatever you want. No. That's not the solution. So to sort of argue for a common sense immigration system, a streamlined immigration system, which is what many conservatives want, does not mean that we don't care about human suffering. But listen, in the, in the end, it's fine because they, they can continue to assume the worst about conservatives. I, I look forward over these next four years on a, on a national level and also on a, on a local level to proving this Tim gentleman and many other people very, very wrong about conservatism. Now that we're in control, we can prove them very wrong. one 3393 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. So, I don't want to be a jerk here. I only got two minutes here. Um, this, this is not... Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. Uh, this is this is this is not a, a building up two minutes, so I will watch myself. But did you see the president gave Joe Biden the Presidential Medal of Freedom with distinction the other day? I, I don't want to be a jerk, but what has he done to deserve the nation's highest civilian honor with distinction? The with distinction part has only been given to Ronald Reagan, Pope John Paul II, and Colin Powell in 1993, back when he was a four-star general. Joe Biden? What are you putting Joe Biden in there? So Obama said um, uh, he he honored Biden's lifetime of public service. Yeah, but who cares? Like everyone, like there's a lot of people that have a lifetime of public service, but also public. It's not even public politician. Lifetime. That's what it is. Biden's lifetime of being a politician, including his decades in the Senate and eight years as vice president. There's a lot of people who have done that. From championing the Violence Women Act, his diplomacy, his diplomacy his cancer moonshot, and his It's On Us campaign to combat sexual assault on college campuses. Listen, that's all fine. That does not deserve the highest civilian honor. Are you kidding me? The Violence Against Women Act. Like, okay, bold stand there. The cancer moonshot was like a year ago. Has anything come from that? And what was the other one? Oh, his diplomacy, whatever. And his It's On Us campaign uh, against sexual assault on college campuses is based on mathematic impossibilities on campus assault. I don't want to go into the whole thing now, but back in 2014, when Joe Biden made this a thing, he made two statements about campus assault. One was that one in five women have been assaulted. And the other was that 12% of student victims report assaults. Only 12% report assaults to law enforcement. Those numbers mathematically can't both be true. I, I we don't have time to go over the math, but just like that, those those two statements that Joe Biden made in 2014 and, and they issued reports about it and all this can't both be true. Mathematically impossible for one in five women to be assaulted and only 12% of students 
who were assaulted to report those to law enforcement. Those two things can't be true at the same time, but they're enough for Joe Biden to earn the Medal of Freedom with distinction. Come on. I think he's likable. I think he actually could have beaten. He's the one person who could have beaten Trump. I said that for a year and a half. But come on. Just given the number one award to politicians just because they've been a politician for a long time? I don't know. Uh, the Chargers left San Diego, which doesn't affect a lot of people, but there's some actually really important economic lessons. We'll talk about that next. Spread the word. Saturday is America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Final hour. Show's been flying by. Um, looking forward to the inauguration on Friday a little bit. I'm really mostly just looking forward to it to be over so we can get down to business. I want to quote Machiavelli here, and then we'll talk about the Chargers. But Machiavelli and the Prince, he said that if you're going to do bad things, quote, do them all at one stroke so as not to have to repeat them daily. For injuries ought to be done all at one time so that being tasted less, they offend less. Right? So if you're going to do a bunch of bad things, do it right now. Do it like the old Band-Aid thing, right? Rip the Band-Aid off one time. I feel like what's going to come up in these next seven days or five days of the Obama presidency, there is going to be a flurry of unconstitutional things or, or of, of pardons, of executive orders, of whatever. And we, of course, are going to be on the lookout for all those. Now, the good news is any, un, any um, executive order can be undone with an executive order. So it's not that big of a deal. But there's going to be a lot of pardons and things like that that we will keep an eye on and let you know about. Now, there's a second half to that sentence. He says injuries ought to be done all at one time so that being tasted less, they offend less. Comma, benefits ought to be given little by little so that the flavor of them may last longer. Now, Obama... Obama is probably going to take the first part of Machiavelli's advice here. He's going he's to do a bunch of bad things all one time, last day. I hope Trump doesn't take Machiavelli's second piece of advice. Don't spread out all the good things you're going to do, President Trump. Do them now. Just, <laughs> just get them done right away. I don't need a little bit here, a little bit there, you know, extend it for two years, and then in two years be like, oh, keep voting for Republicans, and then we'll do more, and then four years, vote for me again. No, do it, do it all right now. As soon as possible. So I hope that President Trump has his own flurry, but this time of good things, of things that we support, of conservative things, and I hope that flurry never stops. So we'll see. So that's why I'm looking forward to the uh, inauguration, mostly just so that it can be over and we get down to work. So I want to talk about the charges here for a second. Um, you may have heard, you may not have heard, because it happened with really little fanfare. But the San Diego Chargers football team moving to Los Angeles. Obviously, this is big news in San Diego, where I live. And it's been a long time coming, many, many years. They've been trying to get a stadium, and the people of San Diego have said no. We're not going to give you hundreds of millions of dollars so you can build a $1.8 billion stadium, which is like, it's crazy. It's a deal that it's not a good deal. So they left. Terrible decision. We're not going to get into the, the X's and O's of that, but it's a terrible decision from uh, Dean Spanos, the owner, because Chargers are now going to be maybe the 12th most popular sports franchise in L.A. 
No one cares about the Chargers in L.A. No one's going to care about the Chargers. They're going to play in the StubHub Center, which is the home of the L.A. Galaxy Major League Soccer Team. It's like a thirty, it's like a twenty-seven thousand stadium. Like it's for the next couple of years until they can move into the Rams Stadium and play second fiddle there and actually pay rent. To be, like it, it, the whole thing is, it's a bad business move even to move to L.A. But that doesn't matter. No one cares about that. I talked to a bunch of people in San Diego who don't. So listen. If you do care about football and you live in San Diego and you're a Chargers fan, uh, this happened on Thursday, like devastating. People went to Chargers headquarters and burned their jerseys, like that whole thing. People are crying. So I talked to a bunch of people who don't care about football, who don't care about the Chargers, who don't know what an onside kick is. I talked to someone at work and she called it the barbecue thing before the game. I was like, you mean the tailgate? She's like, yeah, yeah, the tailgate. So a lot of people, especially in San Diego, like it's not a big football town. And there's a lot of people here who don't care at all. But all of those people who don't care at all said that they do feel bad for the people who work at the Chargers games who now don't have a job. Because you get some people who are like, oh, what a sad day. My team's no longer in San Diego. But then you got a lot of people who are like, oh, this is a very sad day because now I don't have a job to pay the bills for my family. So that's a a much bigger deal. I say all that because I want to talk about the economic impact of football teams and of giant stadiums now every city's a little bit different but the economic principles are generally the same first anytime you have a tourism board or a chamber of commerce or a sports team touting the economic benefits of it they are grossly exaggerating it to the point of completely making it up so there was a citizens task force uh, in 2003, that said the Chargers bring in $150 million of economic activity, uh, $150 million of annual economic impact. Now, how they do that is they they consider dozens of different factors, which they hand choose, leave out an infinite number of factors, which they many of them they actively and willfully decide not to include, right? because it may hurt their final numbers. And then within each of those numbers, they make those up too. There's just so much made up information to get to that number. There was two studies done maybe five months ago. One paid for by the Chargers about what the economic impact would be if they built the stadium downtown. Another was done by the hotel owners about what the economic impact would be if they built a stadium downtown San Diego. The numbers were completely different. They asked the same question. They were totally different. How could that be? Well, each study hand chose a certain number of factors let's say 10 they were each 10 different factors and they came up with just they just made up numbers <laughs> all they just make them all up and then we're supposed to say oh no that's that's, that's that's what it is absolutely no now there was one factor that both the chargers and the hotel owners both had they both they both had right and it was number of people that will stay in a hotel room per game day or something and the Chargers made up that 3.2 people will come to San Diego per hotel room. And the hotel owners made up 1.8 people. And they just made them up. And But that affects the number of dinners that are bought. That affects the number of trolley tickets that are bought. It affects the amount of gas, the amount of food, blah, 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 blah. And they ended up coming to completely different numbers about the economic impact of the Chargers Stadium downtown. So what do we do with that? And gosh, this ties back in. The reason I bring this up, because no one listening cares about the Chargers, um, I bring this up because it's it's the same thing as fake news. 
I mean, and, and really our bigger principle of maybe it used to be trust, but verify. Now it's don't believe anything until you can prove it true yourself. We have to be just super cynical. And I hate to say that, but anytime you see a number, you have to be like, that's not right. You just have to, you can't even assume it's right. You have to say, that's not right. I need to see how they came up with that and have a super critical eye to everything. So when they come out and say, oh yeah, the Chargers uh, economic benefit, $150 million. No, it doesn't. No, they don't. So John Vrooman is a Vanderbilt econ professor and he specializes on sports stuff. And he says, when you look at impact numbers, economic impact numbers from tourism groups and chamber of commerces, he says the rule of thumb is to move the decimal point one place to the left. <laughs> so $150 million economic impact, eh, it's more like $15 million. <laughs> That's a pretty big difference. So why, why, why is it so big? Or I should say, why, not why is the difference so big, why is the actual economic impact of something like a sports team so small? Two economic points I want to bring up here quickly. One, when, so money's fungible. When someone spends $100 at a, for a game, for to go to a Chargers game, ticket, you know, hot dog, parking, whatever. That person doesn't spend $100 at the movies. So when the Chargers leave, that person who would spend $100 at the game, they're not going to burn $100. They're going to go to the movies. They're going to go out to eat. They're going to do something else with $100. So money just moves and is spent on something different. So that's why, you know, the impact of the Chargers, meh. It's something, but it's not huge either way. It's not huge when they're here. It's not huge when they leave. It's not a huge hit when they leave. So that's point number one. Point number two. This is a classic case of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. The classic example that we always give is a politician wants to build a bridge. So they tax everybody $10 to build the bridge. And everyone sees this giant bridge being built and they see hundreds of construction workers being employed. So the politician gets all this credit for creating jobs. Concentrated benefit. There's the bridge. There are the people working on it. But what people don't see is the negative impact of taking $10 from everyone in town. You take 10 bucks from everyone. Well, that's fewer. Let's just go with movie tickets purchased. So because people have $10, everyone has $10 less, fewer people go to the movies, 10 different movie theaters have to lay someone off. No one sees those 10 people laid off from movie theaters. Dispersed costs. No one sees it. No politician gets any blame for it. So because you have such obvious concentrated benefits and no one pays attention to the dispersed cost, People keep making bad economic decisions over and over again. And politicians keep getting held up and lifted up as people who are creating jobs. Because all we see are the jobs they created. We don't see the jobs that were lost because of whatever policy they enacted. So the Chargers and all these sports teams and, and many other things like it are very seen, concentrated benefits. But now that the Chargers leave, those benefits will still 
be here. They'll just be more spread out citywide to all the other things that you can do in San Diego or whatever city uh, you live in. My point is, if your NFL team leaves, don't worry. <laughs> there's, there's, there's more to life and there's more to your city. It's better to have an NFL team than not, but it's just not a good business decision to hand over a billion dollars in taxpayer money to keep them. It's not a good business decision for the economy and for the taxpayer. It's just not. So don't do it. And if your team gets up and leaves, it's fine. You'll be okay. And so will San Diego. We have SeaWorld. Come visit. one 888 3393 Slater Radio on Twitter. Uh, Want to come back with... Story I read, I, I knew half of this story a couple of years ago, but I never heard the second half of it. It's a nice inspirational story um, that I think you'll be able to apply to your life. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I just want to play this quick clip here of Brad Meltzer. I talked to him on my local show the other day. He is uh, an author of, of many books, but he has a children's book series, which I could not recommend more. Everyone has to buy them. Uh, I promise you they're spectacular. If there was one work of art today that I could cross off the author's name and put my own on it, it would be these books. It's the I Am series. Um, so I can pull it up here. Uh, there's, I am George Washington. Sorry, I should have had it here. One more click here. Come on, internet, don't let me down. Uh, I'm George Washington. I am Jane Goodall. I am Jackie Robinson. I am Helen Keller. I am MLK Jr. I am Lucille Ball. I am Amelia Earhart. They're awesome, 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 awesome. Buy them all. It's an amazing, amazing collection of kids' books. So he has a new one. I am Jim Henson. And I just want to play a quick clip from, um, from him talking about I am Jim Henson, 1274. Um, you know, what I love most about him is Jim Henson and Kermit the Frog, you know, created the Muppets. We all know that part. But that's kind of nostalgia. That's why we love the Muppets. But what we really, just because something's old doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> so I was kind of nervous that if I went back and looked at it, like, is he going to be good? Does that mean, or is it just like, that's just nostalgia. But when you go back to his life, the best part of it is he's amazing. And one of his stories that I love, especially for this kid's book, for, you know, to teach my kids what it means to be a hero, is Jim Henson wanted his first job to be in television. And he goes to all these TV stations for jobs. They all reject him. And it's not he, – he finally sees an ad that says they're looking for a puppeteer. And he goes into the local library. He takes out a book on puppetry. He goes back to the same TV station that rejected him, and he says, I'm a puppeteer. Will you hire me? <laughs> And I want my kids to know that if someone puts an obstacle in your way, you go around it. And that's the lesson of I Am Jim Henson. It teaches you right from the start that it's what makes him great is hard work right from there. Love it. <clears throat> uh, and one more, also on my local show, every Monday we, we have a biographer segment. And we have a different biographer on. And we ask the same question. What are three characteristics that define the person in your biography? Um, what are three characteristics of them that uh, define them that we can apply to our lives? And then a little story with each characteristic. And we've done it for over a year now and created a nice little anthology of, of people who have really done incredible things in America. 
Some you know and some you've never heard of, but should. And the one word that gets thrown the most is perseverance. It's the most common characteristic of successful people, people who don't give up, no matter what. I want to share a quick story here. I got three minutes. Um, I've heard the second half of this story before, but I've, I never heard the part that comes before that. So this is the story of two writers. They met in college, fell in love. He taught English at a private school. Didn't make a lot of money. He also had to work uh, summers at a laundromat and a janitor and a gas station attendant to make money, to make ends meet. She worked second shift at a Dunkin' Donuts and they had a toddler as well. They lived in a double wide trailer, barely, barely making ends meet. And he would write whenever he had a minute to do it, which wasn't very often. And he would send stuff out and he'd get a little check every once in a while, just enough to buy groceries here and there. I want to jump forward to the part of the story I've heard before, and then I'll come back to the part I haven't. He started to write a story out and he got three pages in and he got so frustrated he couldn't do anymore. He, he took the pages, crumpled them up in anger and threw them in the trash can. The next day, his wife went to empty the trash cans, read what he wrote, like found the crumpled up papers, opened, up, opened them up and read them. And when he came back from work that, that day, they were sitting on the kitchen counter and she said, you've got something here. She pushed him to grit through it, helped him mold the characters, and nine months later, Stephen King had his first hit with Carrie. It was published for a $2,500 advance. They were freaking out. It only sold 13,000 copies in hardback. But a couple months later, the paperback, the people bought it, the company bought it in paperback, and they gave him a $200,000 check. And that was the beginning of Stephen King. Wouldn't have happened if his wife didn't pick the papers out of the garbage and encourage him to continue. Now, I've heard that part of the story before, and that's a great story. But there's a more interesting part to it. One that, uh, well, you decide. The school, this was a couple months before. The school he worked at offered him a job to advise the debate team, right? Become an advisor for the debate team. Would have paid another $300 a year. They needed the money. He took the job. His wife said, well, that's great, honey, but when will you ever get a chance to write? He said, well, I won't anymore. And she said, well, then you can't take it. He was stunned. She, he thought she'd be super happy because he was bringing in more money. But she wasn't. <laughs> Because she wanted him to continue his passion over the immediate money. Imagine if she didn't encourage that. Imagine if Stephen King just took the money, took the job, and never had any more time to write. Then none of, then Carrie wouldn't have gotten written, and then all the other books, wouldn't, and all the other things that he's done wouldn't have happened either. Isn't that amazing? Every success at some point had so many times to quit. Anyone who's successful had so many times they could have quit, but by definition, they, they didn't and they kept going. Add that to your uh, list of motivational stories to get you through if you're in one of those ruts right now. Keep going. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Hello, Slater Crusaders. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Um, let's wrap up the show with this, I suppose. So we talked earlier in the last hour about guy writing in the week about how conservatives are evil, saying that conservatives don't care about the suffering of others. It's just, uh, it's just an ignorant thing to say. Um, I don't believe that progressives don't care about the suffering of others. I think progressives and conservatives all care about, people all care about the suffering of others. We just have different solutions to the suffering, that's all. Um, but I want to talk about conservatism in general, and, and maybe this can help if there's anyone listening who does think conservatives are evil, which is what he said. He said conservatives are evil because we don't care about the suffering of others. <clears throat> We're not evil. Please give me a break. Let me try to add a little bit to help you understand, perhaps. There was a, a Dutch painter, I think the 16th century. His name is uh, Hieronymus Bosch. I have no idea how to spell that. <laughs> Hieron- it's like there's a Y in there somewhere. Hieronymus Bosch. And there, he's obviously got a ton of paintings, but there's one I want to describe to you. It's called The Garden of Earthly Delights. It's in three panels. Uh, the panel on the left, you have, um, and they're crazy paintings. They're all kind of weird, but uh, the panel, there's three panels. The one on the left, God is uh, presenting uh, Eve to Adam and everything is beautiful and exotic and green and there's animals and plants and all that. The center panel, which is the biggest, everyone's doing whatever they want and it's a bit loco it's fantastical like all the everything's just weird and out of proportion and and crazy um it's like the painting was written or drawn in the 1500s but it's it's still today like futuristic in a weird way and everyone's doing their own thing according to their own moral compass whatever they want and then you got the, the right panel the third panel and you guessed it it's hell it's a hellish scene uh, where the humans have succumbed to their temptations and there's a city in the background that's burning uh, and you get the idea, right? So you, you see what he's doing here. It's the garden of earthly delights. I believe that this painting demonstrates a truth of human existence. It's a truth of life that order decays. It's called entropy. The second law of thermodynamics says that in an isolated system, So without an external force applied, things decay. Things, everything entropies entropies over time. There's only four laws of thermodynamics, and that's the second. Things decay. And it's obvious. When you buy something, let's say you buy a toaster, it doesn't get nicer over time, right? The toaster doesn't get better. It gets older. It rusts. It falls apart. Your body gets older, decays. droops (laughs) things stop working properly you get the idea your eyes don't work as well right because your eyes are entropying the second law of thermodynamics now your laws entropy until or unless maybe you get lasik that would be an external force but without an external force things get older things fall apart i think the same is true with society without an external force which is god if we just go aimlessly we will entropy. We will decay. That's why I'm a conservative. Because I believe without order, without religious truths, without traditions, without virtue and purity and respect, things fall apart. Science. <laughs> and it's happened countless times societies in human history 
It's funny. We have such a, a small perception of human history. We think, so when we think history in America, mm-hmm. we think uh, well, our history. And then maybe we'll go back to ancient Rome, right? So, so like our, our perception of history is ancient Rome, ancient Greece, and then us. <laughs> like, that, like that's kind of it. But there's history, I mean, further back than the Romans and the, and the, uh, the Greeks. And all over the world. There's societies all over the world. There's societies people have never heard of. Ancient societies that are, that are long gone that people have never even heard of um, that I spent way too long studying in college. But they're, 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 they all really about It's the same story. It's the same entropy. It's all the same type of decay. We quoted uh, Matt Chandler from the Village Church, I think, last week. We were talking about men, right? And he said, where men fill the purpose and design of men, as the Bible has outlined it, humanity flourishes. And where men refuse to step into the space that men are called to fill, the world burns. He says, you want to look at it economically, you want to look at it sociologically, just do a secular study of what happens when men refuse to be husbands and refuse to be fathers. Look at what happens. Everything breaks. So in, in that quote there, the men are, the in the family, are the outside force, right? Like, Men come in, so you, so you have you have the you have the closed system, which is just people, family, entropying, decaying, and then we men or everyone right, but women too obviously, but in this case men have to come in and and build it back up constantly all the time. Things are always falling, things are always failing, things are always breaking. People are always fighting. You got to come in as a dad and bring things together, build things back up. Otherwise, things will decay. If you don't do anything, they decay. That's the natural force. Makes sense, right? Everyone knows this. It's a truth. Everyone knows it. I also believe that the truth is already known. I don't think we have to make anything else up. There's no new truth. There's always new ways to apply truth, but the truth is already here. Proverbs 4 pretty much says all on this point, but like it's, it's all there. The truth is already known. Just got to apply it. So that's why I'm a conservative. I'm not looking for new truth. Here it is. I'm looking for new ways to apply it to every aspect of life, of course. But the truth is here. And we need that truth. Otherwise, society decays. Does that make me evil? Of course not. I'll end on this just because I got a minute. Uh, Rudyard Kipling is uh, wrote my favorite poem. I've talked about it before in passing called gods of the copybook headings it's awesome copybook headings means truth which is another word for truth so gods of truth and it's a poem about how in all of human history for all of human history truth has been known but people think they know better and they stray from it they do their own thing and then the truth smacks them again in the face and then people think they found a new truth and they and they go follow that and they stray, and then the, the real truth smacks them in the face again. And we just do it over and over and over again. And that's what history is. That, that's human history. That's the story of human history. And I think it ends, I think the poem ends with, um, as it will be in the future, it was at the birth of man, right? So it's been like that forever. There are only four things certain since social progress began. That the dog returns to his vomit 
And the sow returns to her mire. And the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wabbling back to the fire. Right? I mean, the burnt fool's bandaged finger. So you already burned yourself on the fire, but you still you go wabbling back to the fire. Right? Dog returns to his vomit in the Bible, right? You just, we keep doing the same mistakes over and over. So that's why I have conservative values. I'm sick of going back to the fire. I'm sick. I have a bandaged finger because I already burned my fire. I'm not going to go back to the fire again. I'm sick of trying to come up with more new truth. No, stop. And people are saying, still maybe people are thinking like, well, Slater, you got to progress. Yeah, yeah. But progression is not the discovery of new truth. It's the application of old truth to new things. Civil rights, for instance, a perfect example. Civil rights was not a discovery of a new truth. It was the application of the truth in the Declaration of Independence applied to all people. And that's how Martin Luther King Jr. framed the entire civil rights movement, which is why it worked. So I'll listen to anyone who wants to apply old truth to new things and new ways and better ways. But if you think you discovered a new truth, I'll listen politely, but uh, you're wrong. one 888 Slider Radio on Twitter. Mike Slider Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Slider Crusaders. Thanks for being here. Excited for uh, for this next week of news. It's going to be crazy with the inauguration. Uh, look forward to it. I don't even know what. We we could have gone. We were going to go. And I was like, I don't do I people and the thing and that i don't know I, but i look forward to watching it um i don't i have no idea what to expect i have no idea at all what to expect so i'm just gonna sit back and uh and take it in i guess it'll be a nice microcosm of this entire last election what the heck is this inauguration gonna be paul anka singing and stuff like what the rockets how are the rockets gonna the mormon tabernacle choir that'd be awesome uh but like where and how and who and just be bizarre. So I look forward to it and uh, it'll be fun because our show on Saturday will be right after the inauguration, which is on Friday. Um, let me wrap up the show with this. I don't know if we ever shared this story. Uh, Nicholas Kristoff in the New York Times wrote an editorial. Uh, it's called The Confession of Liberal Intolerance. And talked about a... Uh, a gentleman, George Yancey, who is a, social, a sociologist who is black and evangelical. Mm. He said, outside of academia, I faced more problems being black. But inside academia, I faced more problems as a Christian. It's not even close, he says. He said he... Uh, <clears throat> Nicholas Kristoff, so he told that story of George Yancey about how uh, inside the academia world, being a Christian was, you know, he's an idiot. And he says, um, I've been thinking about this because on Facebook, I recently wondered aloud whether universities stigmatize conservatives and undermined intellectual diversity, obviously. The scornful reaction from my fellow liberals proved the point. Someone wrote, much of the conservative worldview consists of ideas that are known empirically to be false. Someone wrote, the truth has a liberal slant. Someone said, why stop there? How about we make faculties more diverse by hiring idiots? And then he went and quoted a study about how 2% of English professors are Republicans and 18% are Marxists. 
So it's, <laughs> have you ever met a Marxist, like a real life Marxist? 18% of English professors are Marx. It's easier to find a Marxist than a, than a Republican. Amazing. Um, he says the biggest bias on college campuses is against Christians. He says the same arguments I hear people make about evangelicals sound so familiar to the ways people often describe folks of color. That is politically unsophisticated, lacking education, anger, angry, bitter, emotional, poor. Anyway, good on, good on Mr. Kristoff for writing about this. Um, I thought so this is in the times a while ago, and I thought it would be an influential piece, right? Or, you know, it caused people to be a little introspection. Right? The first comment to the article, quote, it's not that conservatives aren't bright. It's that, for the most part, they are narrow-minded and are sure they have the right answers. Most that I know or know of don't have much exposure to the world outside their ideological strata and not much interested in such exposure. It's part of being a conservative. Who would want such narrow thinkers and true believers to be part of academia? So here's someone saying conservatives shouldn't be welcomed in universities because they're narrow-minded and ignorant which is a pretty narrow-minded and ignorant reason to keep anyone out of academia, right? But the irony is lost on them, no doubt. I bring it up just as a to follow up on what I was talking about before because I believe the truth is known. I believe the truth already exists. There's no new truth. We're never going to discover a new truth. It's all there. Someone will look at that, I guess, and say I'm narrow-minded? No, I don't, I don't, I don't see that. I, I mean, you can make up stuff all day long, but... I think to look at the course of human history and see how it always goes and to realize those truths and apply them to today and making the right decisions, I don't think that's narrow-minded at all. I think it's pretty narrow-minded to think that you can discover a new truth, to be honest. But again, the irony is uh, <clears throat> is lost. Well, no, we shouldn't let conservatives in uh, universities. They're just so uh, so narrow-minded. Yeah, pretty ignorant, pretty narrow-minded people. They don't, uh, they don't, they don't like uh, listening to diverse opinions. <laughs> like, oh, okay, I guess. Uh, Slater, Slater Radio. So anyway, remember one of our uh, one of our themes of the year. The second one was I know so little. Remember, second one is I know so little. Always question our perspectives. Always question these truths. Glenn always quotes that Thomas Jefferson line about uh, questioning God. Right? He'd rather have someone who who honest question rather than blind faith. God would rather, rather be praised by someone who questions honestly than blind faith, right? So always question, always, always, always. And always have the humility to think, you know, maybe I'm not quite right on this one. But that's different than trying to discover a new truth. That's impossible. It's always trying to find the truth. Slater Radio on Twitter. Let's hang out this week on Facebook. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. And uh, we'll see you next week for... Uh, the show right after the inauguration. What a crazy, I don't, I don't see, I, it, it, I don't see how this week can be any crazier than last, but I, I think we have four years of this, four years of every, we can't have, we can't have every week outdo the last, can we? Is that possible? I don't want that. I don't, I can't, I can't take that, but it'll be fun. I'm glad you're here. Slater Radio on Facebook. We'll see you next Saturday. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater.
part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.